Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you so much, praise team. They got the call this morning about 10 minutes before they got here to say that Pastor Justin uh, would not be here and to, to pull that together and make it feel and sound like it was not in any way, shape, or form pulled together is a, is a task. And I know um, I'm, I'm grateful for the, the gifted men and women we have here at this church to lead us in such ways. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. Um, it was about, let's see, I think it was about um, maybe two months ago now, a month and a half ago, I was invited to preach at Amelia Baptist Church, my uh, brother's church that he pastors, um, and he asked me to preach this text. And so I love it when that happens, by the way, when you go to another church and they tell you the text to preach. That's always very helpful. And, and, and though as I was writing this, I thought, I definitely have to preach this at our church. This is just a word that I think is so needed, and this week has done nothing but confirm that. And so uh, we're going to take some time this morning to go through 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. Um, I'm going to read it, and then we are going to look at uh, the strangeness of the gospel uh, this morning. The strangeness of the gospel. So if you have your copy of God's Word and you're able, would you stand for the reading of it? 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. Text that's probably familiar with us. Let's go ahead and read it. Uh, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Father, I simply ask this. I ask that you would conform us to this, your word. Lord, I, as the speaker, am irrelevant. It's the word that must stand and be brought. So I ask, Father, that you would use your word from uh, the smallest one here to the oldest adult, that you would cause the ears to be hearing ears, that they would catch hold of the truth that is so desperately needed, that it would be clear. Father, just remove the distractions from our mind. Remove those things that would cause them to wonder and instead instruct us during this hour together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So as I've said in the title, the goal of this morning and our time together is simply to look at the strangeness of the gospel. How the gospel both separates us from this, the present world, while simultaneously sending us out into that same world with the redeeming message of God's grace. But, but really more than anything, it's just, the, it's just the strangeness of our present situation that I want to focus on this morning. I mean, listen, as a, as a Christian, even this week, even this last year, or this last couple years, have you felt it? Have you felt how out of place we are as God's people? Listen, church, hear me. 
we don't fit in here anymore. We, we don't. Our views, our values, our entire worldview seems all out of place here in this world. And there's a reason they seem out of place. You know what it is? Because they are out of place. We don't belong here. And, and by here, of course, I mean in this present age of rebellion and sin, this is not our homeland. And friends, one aspect of the gospel, I'm afraid that specifically American evangelicals have forgotten, is how the gospel does make us strangers to this world. That's been really easy for us to get here, especially in the United States. Why? Because, well, for many years we've lived under the illusion that we are a Christian nation where everybody shares in a Christian consensus. But hear me, church, that's gone if it ever existed at all, it's simply gone. We are now a clear minority who do not fit in with the culture around us. We are strangers in a strange land. So what do we do? Well, instead of wringing our hands about that and daydreaming about the past glories, we ought to understand that this has been God's plan all along for his people. This is very much today like the world of the first century the gospel burst onto to begin with. It's very much like the first century that Peter was writing into this church who is facing heavier persecution than we would ever dream of. I mean, the, the churches that Peter writing to are under the persecution of Nero, which means in order to keep the city alight at night, they would set Christians on fire to light the city. That's an incredibly painful amount of persecution that we've never experienced. But Lord, this sort of setting of, of being strangers in a strange land, of being different, this is where we must live to the praise of the glory of his grace. And listen, it's in living to the glory of his grace in the midst of the strangeness of the gospel that you and I will most see its power. So I want us to look at three particular things this morning about what it means that we are strangers and aliens in a strange and alien world. And I want to begin with this one. First, we are strangers to this world because we have been called out of darkness to belong to God. That, that's why we're strangers. We are strangers in this world because you and I, by the Spirit of God, have been called out of darkness to belong to God. That's what we see in verse 9. Look with me at verse 9 of our text. Put your eyes on it with me if you will. He says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, there are a lot of things. We could preach an entire series, really, on just verse 9. We won't, but we could talk about each one of these terms and exactly what they mean. But at the heart of each one of those words in verse 9 is the idea of separation from the world in order to belong to God. Look at them with me. We see the first word chosen. It means to be select out from a group. God has chosen us out of the mass of fallen humanity as Christians in order to make us his own special people. Then we see the word priest. 
Well, what are they? Think of the Old Testament and what they are. Priests are those who are separated out from the rest of the nation in order to serve God. To be holy, we know what that means. It means to be separated from that which is common or sinful in order to belong in a special way to God. And then just to make sure we got that, he says that we are his own special people. Literally, we are a people of possession. We are his possessions that he has called out of darkness of this world and into his marvelous light. The whole point of that is that we can't belong to this world or hold the values of this world anymore because now we belong to him. You know, you know that's what makes us strangers here, don't you? With conversion, with new birth, we have had a radical shift in our identity. In fact, we've had a radical shift in three particular areas of our identity. We see in a couple ways in these verses, starting with verse 10, there's been a radical shift in our relationship with God. We have had a radical shift in our relationship with God. You must know that if you're a Christian. Look at verse 10 with me of 1 Peter chapter 2 where he writes, Who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Do you see the shift there? whole point of that is you've been brought out of this world in order to be brought into fellowship with God. We are now a people who walk in the light and experience of his presence. And so in bringing us into the light of fellowship with him, he has taken us out of the fellowship of the darkness of the sin in this world. It's a complete change of address. It's a complete change of domains. In fact, Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 speaks of this when he says that he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us or really transferred us into the kingdom of the son of his love. Look at that language there. From and into. We've been brought from one thing and into another thing. Out of this world and into fellowship with God. That means we can no longer continue in fellowship with a world that is in rebellion against our master. This is, this is all throughout Scripture. And not even just the Old Testament. It's the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 8 says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 4 and 5. We should be familiar with this, I hope. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. We have a new relationship with God, and that changes everything. Second, there's also been a radical shift, not only in our relationship with God, but in our relationship with one another. Verse 9, by the way, says that we together are all those things. Chosen generation, royal priesthood, holy nation, his own special people. These are all plural. It's not something that just happened to you individually, but to us corporately. We have not just been called to him, but we've been called to his church. This is now our people. Look around you, church. You know what you should see to your left, to your right, in front and behind? Your people. These are your people. This is our new identity. Uh, many of you might know that the word church in the Greek is ekklesia. 
Did you know that? Ecclesia. The word literally means to be called out. It's basically the noun version of the words we find in verse 9. When it says we are called out of darkness into marvelous light. We have been called, kaleo, out of darkness. Ek. There's a connection there. Now, why am I pointing it out? I'm pointing it out because, again, this is your identity now. This is who you are and this is who you belong to. We can no longer think of ourselves as belonging to one group of people, this group or that group in the world. And friends, that's exactly what the world is doing. Do you recognize that? How many groups of people or identity do we have to list ourselves in in this world? How is that being propelled by our government and this world system on a continued basis? Identify yourself as either this or that. You must. Friends, no. We belong exclusively to one, him. We are his church. That's our people group, the church. I'm not sure if that'll pass if you go to the doctor and they ask you to fill out a form and you just, when they ask you what your race is, you just say, the church. Or they ask you what your identity is, you just say, the church. I don't think that'll pass, but friends, that's exactly who we are. We are the church. And so, third, we've seen there's been a radical shift in our relationship with God. There's been a radical shift in our relationship with one another. But there's also been a radical shift in the central pursuit of our lives. The central pursuit of our lives. And we should know that, shouldn't we? What is the pursuit of our lives? We've said this over and over again. What's the end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's, that's our pursuit. We see this all over this passage. We have been called as God's possession to proclaim his excellencies, to declare his glory. And at the end of verse 12, we are to live in such a way as where they see us and glorify God. So we are a people called to make much of him. Our lives are now oriented to him. We exist for him. Our decisions center on him. Our hearts are satisfied in him. Again, this is what makes us strangers here because the world does not know him and is in rebellion against him. And the deeper that rebellion grows, church, the more strange and alien we become. That brings us to the next point then. Okay, since we do belong to him, we find ourselves estranged from this world and its values. Since we understand that we're strangers because we've been called out of darkness to belong to God, now that we belong to them, we find ourselves estranged in this world and from its values. Look at verse 11 with me. Peter says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul. Do you notice that word there? War? That means there's conflict here. We don't fit in with this place anymore. The values of this culture that focus on self, that's the world's values, clash with the values that focus on Christ. There's a collision here, and this collision leaves us with a choice daily. We can either try to fit in with this world by adopting what I'll call a camouflage faith, trying to hide the strangeness of Christianity, or we can live boldly and graciously in the face of an increasingly hostile world. 
I mean, Jesus made this very clear in John chapter 15, didn't he? He couldn't make it more clear if he tried, which he did try. John 15, 18 through 19 says, Flat out, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now, this may come to a surprise to you, and it's, it's probably, you probably don't believe it. Um, I, I really, if you got to know me, you'd learn, I really don't necessarily like confrontation and conflict a whole lot. Uh, and yes, God called me to be a pastor, which is still laughable. Um, but I, I need to get used to this idea. And I think I'm not the only one. I think, in fact, there's an increasing amount of people who are growing more uncomfortable with any sort of conflict or confrontation, right? You ever have that where there's just some issue with somebody and you know you've got to have the conversation and it's just that well up of fear of, I don't like this, I don't want to do this, right? Uh, but friends, we have to get used to the idea that there's going to be conflict. We, we can't avoid it. Here's the reality. This world will tolerate a lot of things. This world will almost tolerate anything actually, but the one thing it will not tolerate is an absolute truth claim that they cannot change. So it's okay with them if you see Jesus as a way to personal fulfillment. If you declare him to be our way and our truth, that's good as long as you're also willing to say that their truth and their way is just as good. You've got yours, they've got theirs, it's fine. But of course, you cannot do that and be faithful to Christ, right? Why? Because Jesus is the one who had the audacity to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. That is a radical truth claim, and it puts us on a collision course with a world that has declared its independence from God. But notice what Peter says here. He says, beloved, I beg you, I urge you. You might have that word in your translation. Peter is saying, essentially, I appeal to you with everything that is in me. These are strong words. Church, Peter is not offering a suggestion to you here. Peter is telling us something that is absolutely vital for our lives. What is it? I beg you, I urge you as sojourners and pilgrims to live this radical new lifestyle of the kingdom. In order to do that, we have to understand that we're sojourners and pilgrims on the earth. And we have to see ourselves this way because we're citizens of heaven. You know that, right? Because we're citizens of heaven, we're no longer citizens here. Because we claim heaven as our home, we can no longer live as if this was our home. And that will make us stick out. Look at those words, sojourners, pilgrims. Both of these words mean a people who are out of place, people far away from home. Sojourner means someone who's not from around here, someone who's just passing through. It's someone living in a place that is not their culture, among a people who are not their people. That is us. As we read in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, for our citizenship is where? It's in heaven, not earth. And so because of this, we now take our values and commands 
uh, from the commands of God and his word. We can't take them from the culture, from the men around us. This is another translation of this world. We are resident aliens here. Think of what it's like for some of our missionaries when they move to a foreign country, right? You're in a very different world all of a sudden. Y'all know Pastor Justin and his wife, Miss Chelsea, served as, a, as missionaries in South Korea for five years. Y'all know where Justin's from, right? Milledgeville, Georgia. You know where Miss Chelsea's from, right? She's a Texan. You can ask them. They stood out a bit there in South Korea. No matter how long they would have stayed there, despite learning the culture and the language, they still never became Korean. Nothing could have ever made them Korean. They always stuck out, and yet they had a wonderful ministry where they loved and served those people as they lived among them. Friends, that's the picture here. We can never fit in with this culture because this is just not our home. We are sojourners. But he also says we're pilgrims or exile or strangers. This is a word that stresses the fact that our stay here is merely temporary. We are just passing through. We're, we're not only just passing through, that means we're headed someplace else. We can't think of this place as our permanent residence, friends, because it's not. It's very much, by the way, like the situation of the Jews when God sent them to live in Babylon for 70 years. In fact, the same words are used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. They were pilgrims and sojourners. God told them during those years to live in Babylon for a while, to pray for the cities where they were living, to have children, build homes, plant gardens and vineyards, raise their families. But don't settle down. Don't blend in. Don't adopt the patterns of life and thinking of Babylon. Why? Because Babylon is not your home. No matter how long you live there among them, you must continue to live as a people set apart to belong to God. That's the picture for us. No matter how long we live in Babylon, and friends, we are living in Babylon, we remain pilgrims in a strange land. That's the point. We're a countercultural people, not a camouflage people. That's how we have to see ourselves. Meaning what? Well, let me tell you first of all what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you and I have to go around purposely trying just to be weird and stick out. Just for the sake of being weird. Uh, it doesn't mean that we just need to go into our own neighborhoods, put up barricades at the end of the block, move into a Christian commune where we only eat Chick-fil-A, shop at Hobby Lobby, grow Spurgeon beards, and, and watch Fireproof on repeat. Right? That's not what it means. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean, we, that actually sounds like a pretty good life, I'm not going to lie. Uh, but it, 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 does, it, it does mean that we must remain faithful to Christ. It means we must keep our eyes fixed on Christ. We must live our lives and values in obedience to Christ, knowing that it will make us stick out. This is what will make us targets. This is what will cause there to be a cost to living the Christian life. And so for the sake of Christ, in allegiance to Christ, we embrace the fact that we cannot fit in here, that we must be countercultural. Now, whenever there is a clash with the values of the Bible and the values of this world, we must hold fast to Christ's word. But understand this. Here's the beauty about that. When that happens... That very fact will be one of the things God uses to drive our faith deeper. 
I mean, in the history of Christianity, it's been really clear. When Christians live in a culture that is on a surface level Christianized, the Christian faith tends to be very shallow. But when Christians are put in a situation where they are forced to live in a countercultured stance, where they're having to think through what it really means to follow Christ in a culture that's pointed in the complete opposite direction, that reality drives the faith deep within. And that's where we are right now in this moment of history. Church family, I know that you know this, but the world has changed. I mean, almost overnight, right? The rapidity of this change in the last 10 years has been breathtaking. I'm not even talking about COVID. The redefinition of marriage, shifting views of sexuality, the confusion over gender, it's insanity. But that's where the world is. Reality itself is under assault. You know that. I think Francis Schaeffer said this is what's going to take place. There will be an escape from reason. That's where we are. And so we must decide where we stand. Will we stand as countercultural Christians holding fast to the truth, or we camouflage our faith at some pitiful attempt to fit in? We've sadly seen this take place among so many evangelical dominations, including our own. To fit in with this culture, they deny those truths that are inconvenient or incompatible with temporary society. And they do so in the name of Christianity to remove the offense so as not to drive people off. But friends, the problem is that the gospel itself is an offense to human pride. And it always will be. The result is always the same. In the end, a camouflaged faith will always abandon Christ in order to keep hold of the culture. Mark my words. What did Paul say in Romans chapter 12, verse 2? He said, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Church, the bottom line for this part is you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and the world because you will love one and you will despise the other. You will embrace one and you will abandon the other. And the moment you embrace the culture, you are on a road that will lead you to abandon Christ. This brings me to the last thing. Third, we must therefore consciously live with a, get this, grace-filled counter-culture allegiance to Christ. Because of all this, because we're strangers to the world and we're estranged from the world and its values, we must therefore consciously live with a grace-filled counterculture allegiance to Christ. Look at verses 11 and 12 with me again. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly, le- fleshly lust, which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Boy, that's a powerful text. So there's a couple of things here. We first want to break this down and look at it in, in two separate parts, just really quickly. The first thing is, is obvious. We, we've talked about it and touched on it, but I want to reiterate. We must live with a counterculture allegiance to Christ. We must. If he's Lord, I must obey him. If he's master, he is in charge. 
That's why Peter here says, abstain from fleshly lust. Abstain means have nothing to do with them. Run from them. Don't be ruled by them. Don't give in to them. Don't be defined by the sinful, sinful inclinations of your flesh. Okay, but who gets to define what's sinful and what's not? That's the question, isn't it? For the camouflage Christian, the culture gets to define that. So when the culture changes its views on what sin is, the definition of sin changes. What was sin in one age might come to be embraced in the other. That's the view of camouflage Christianity. But it cannot be the view of biblical Christianity. Why? Well, does God change his views? No. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change. Pretty clear, isn't it? My Old Testament professor used to say this. He said, on the day you stand before God in judgment, he's not going to check your toe tag to see your expiration date. In other words, he's not going to say, oh, you died in 1634, so the standard by which you will be judged is by the standard of 1634, but you died in 2021, so your standard will be different. No, there will only be one standard and only one standard that will blow away every standard of man. And that's what we must understand as we stand before God. God is the one who has defined sin once for all in his word. A word which Jesus said does not change or cast away or cannot be altered, not even down to the last jot or tittle. So if we belong to Christ, we must accept his definition of sin. In fact, God warns us in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, he says this, and this is a verse I've come to, to know and to love in the last couple of years. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. The Christian must abstain from every lust, every sinful attraction as defined by God. Right and wrong must be defined by God, not by my inward lust. That's why Christ came. He, he came to save me from the sin that rules my inner world and give me a grace that claims me for a better world with him at the center. So Christian, especially young people, I know we have very many young people here today, but the young people hear this. You, you really need to hear this. Beware of those in the culture that would redefine sin. Beware of those who advocate for sin that God condemns. The folks who redefine sin, they are not your friends. They are trying to take you away from Christ, not to him. We cannot allow this alien world with its self-focus and shifting definition of sin to set the standard for our lives. Christ alone has the right to do that. But, but Christian, listen, that'll always put us on a collision course with the culture. So second, here's the key to all of this. It sounds a lot like fundamentalism right now, right? Can, <laughs> but listen, second, while saying no to what God defines as sin, here's the difference. We keep saying yes to what God defines as righteousness. What, while saying no to what God defines as sin, we keep saying yes to what God defines as righteousness. And here's what keeps you from being a legalist. Holy living is not just saying no to the bad things that God condemns. It's even more about saying yes and finding joy in the good things that God approves. 
Look at verse 12 again, verse 12 of chapter 2. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Honorable here means beautiful morally. Honorable here is the Christ-exalting life that is good as defined by God. See, here's the point. He's calling you away to good things, to better things. Honorable here is the godly life that is centered and shaped on God in such a way that shows Christ's worthiness. What he's talking about here is how we boldly and beautifully live our Christian lives in the face of a watching world. And listen, when he says Gentiles, he he doesn't really even mean ethnic Gentiles like you and I. At this point, he's using Gentiles to mean pagans, those outside the gospel of grace. And so here we are, shining, not hiding our faith, not trying to camouflage our faith. We are to live a bold and beautiful life in Christ that demonstrates the radical difference between the Christ-centered life and the self-centered life. And so even when they slander us because they hate our values and reject the truth, they ought to be blown away by the graciousness, the kindness, and the genuineness of our love for them, the sacrificial way in which we serve them. That's the key, folks. This, listen, being set apart from the world does not give you license to be a jerk. Did you know that? I I feel like you need to know that because that's often what happens in Christianity is we think that because we're separate from the world that that it's, A, it's because of our own righteousness, which is not true in any way, shape, or form. You bring nothing to the table. Jesus brings it all. And secondly, you begin to think if you've served some sort of greater purpose, that you can treat people worse than the way the Lord treats them. He loves his people. He loves people. You must love people. You must serve them and be gracious to them because you do not know who the Lord's elect are. You don't know. You're not put in that position, by the way. You're not put in the position to determine who's worthy to hear the gospel. No, everyone deserves to hear the gospel. So it does not give you license to be a jerk. That's a a good thing, and they can't explain it because it's different. It's different from the world. Again, understand, you can't save the world by fitting in. They need Christ because Christ is the one who makes a radical change, and the change is beautiful. So we just live as representatives of his kingdoms here on earth. We live as ambassadors, which means we must live a grace-filled countercultural revolution. One where it is not ultimately even against uh, even about the sins we are against, but it's ultimately about the grace that we are for. The grace that conquers sin. Our focus is not on the sins we oppose nearly as much as it's on the righteousness we love. We want to radiate his righteousness into the world that they may see his good works and glorify your Father that's in heaven. Let me just ask you, Christian, do you have any good works that are worth seeing? Do you have any good works that are being seen? But as you live them, notice, it will always bring this tension. They will not like what they stand for. 
They're offended by our tenacious hold on the truth, and yet they're blown away, or they ought to be blown away when we get close enough to see, for them to see how we actually treat them with love and respect because of that truth. How do we close here? I want to give you one final example of how I think this works in our lives, and we're done. The example is of a place called Fire Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I really don't know anything about their theology, uh, but I I did read this story in preparation for this sermon, and I thought it was fitting. It seems as if Fire Church was targeted by the local activists because of their stance on biblical marriage. And so this organization planned a protest one Sunday at the church, They were going to show up and be peaceful, but they were going to make their presence known in the church, hoping just by being present, making it obvious for why they were there, they could provoke this church and these Christians into a bad reaction that would make the church look really foolish. When Pastor Pastor Scott Volk found out about this, he posted on their website these words. He said, As the pastor of Fire Church, I just want you to know that you'll be greeted with the same love and compassion we always endeavor to show anyone. You are more than welcome. You make mention of the hate that we show, yet in all our years here, we've only desired to reach out with love to everyone in the local community here, whether they're labeled as gay or straight. Hopefully, you'll see that love demonstrated on Sunday as you protest. And now I'll read a testimony from the church on the day after the protest. On August 26, 2015, about 10 protesters showed up, and we were disappointed there were so few. Some of our fire leaders met with them, offering them water and snacks, sharing God's love and truth with them, and then inviting them to join us in the service. After a few minutes, they left explaining we were too nice and loving to deserve a protest. Bear in mind that these protesters know the standards we have taken for biblical values, and some of them have listened to my radio broadcast or read my writings, so they recognize how strongly we differ from them on many key issues, yet they also recognize our genuine love for them and say that we were not full of hate. The love of Jesus flowing out of spirit-filled, godly hearts makes an impact that cannot be denied. The next day, on Monday, August 27th, the leader of the protest called into my radio show to apologize publicly for the protest, explaining that in their anger, we aimed in the wrong direction. This is what it looks like to be strangers and aliens in a strange and alien world. And yes, obviously, that is a wonderful testimony, and that story could have gone multiple different ways, but friends, it does not matter. The outcome doesn't matter. The response of the Christian is what matters. And can I tell you frankly, this has been the most discouraging thing in the last five or ten years to see. It's not that the world is going by the wayside, because you know what? That's expected. It is. They're sinners. That's what sinners do. They sin continually. They're in rebellion against God. That's what those in rebellion against God do. They rebel continuously. The disheartening thing is to be the response of Christians. Seeing that... And the lack of love and genuine compassion for people, and not only that, the lack of focus on the mission. You you know this, right? The goal was not to get America a Christian nation again. You know that? That's not the goal. The goal is to win souls to Christ. It's that simple. It is. Let's be honest here. Let's think about this. Let's just get to the heart of why we want America to be a Christian nation. Is it because we want to go back to the comfort and ease of not having to live the Christian life? Because that's really what it was. 
You, you want to talk about the consumer mentality we get in the local church? We got it from a wave of being comfortable being Christian in a society that was surface level Christianized, but, but deeply, deeply legalistic. Deeply, deeply not valuing the things of Christ and deeply, deeply lacking grace and compassion and a drive to share Christ with people. So, so, Lord, so, so maybe the Lord, what he's doing here is allowing us to suffer a little bit so we'll get our minds in the right place to understand why we exist. To worship him and to proclaim his gospel. Amen. It's not to live a comfortable, cushy life. It's to proclaim Christ. And guess what? Heaven's comfortable. We'll be comfortable for all eternity. I'll take the comfort of heaven and some unease in this world. I don't know about you. Friends, this is how we must respond to everything. Listen, we've got everything to be divided about right now in our culture, don't we? Here's the answer. Grace-filled, counter-cultural lives. Radically on point and on mission for the gospel of King Jesus. Will you join me in that endeavor? Can we do this together? Can we understand that this is our purpose? Listen, I, I, I do want American to be a Christian nation, but I, I want it so that we can use the advancement we have here to reach the nations. That's it. That's the only thing I care about. I want to do it here so we have the ability and technology to go even further. I want this to be a Christian world. <laughs> I want Christ to come back, and I know for a fact he will, and he'll make it that way one way or another. So while I'm here, I'm on mission. How about you? Will you join me? I pray so. Let's stand as we close together. Father, I pray that you would help us as your people, that you'd help us navigate these very difficult and choppy waters. This is difficult, Father, because we are people of flesh. We're people who sin. We do get angry. We do say and do wrong things. We don't always know how we ought to respond, especially when we're slandered. But Jesus, you have already shown us and given us the example in your life that we are to respond to all hate with love. That when we are slandered, we are to continually to be faithfully holding fast to the gospel of Christ. And so help us, Lord, to know how to stand firm on the truth without wavering and yet giving that truth with love without changing. Whew, that's hard, Father. How I'm thankful for your spirit, how I'm thankful for your grace that covers us, that will mold us into this image more and more. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.